Good morning, beloved. We will be in 1 Samuel chapter 20 if you want to make your copy of scripture ready. 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting at the top. Welcome back, campers. Woo, I like the woo. <laughs> Oh man, I was a youth pastor for a few years, and so I have paid my dues in leading camps. Um, so thank you to those of you who led this camp. Um, but one thing that I remember, and just kind of reflecting on what camp experiences are like, uh, there's a lack of sleep in totality. Um, but as a camp leader, you never want to admit weakness, because they will hone in on that and exploit it. So as a camp leader, it's kind of that whole like, I'm not tired, you're tired. Um, but you just know that I got 30 minutes of sleep last night. You don't know that because you got three hours, but I'm fine. You're not fine. So you just keep going. And I, I was pretty good at, I think, at least convincing a lot of them that I was okay when I was really not okay. And um, that would usually catch up with me, especially as I had my own children. And so I would come home after a week of sleep deprivation, and then my kids with their snotty noses and stuff would give me something, and then suddenly it would become like crippling to me, that my immune system was just compromised, and it was just awful. Uh, but you never wanted to admit that. You never want to admit that, that you have a weakness. And, and so today, as we continue this series, uh, Seat at the Table, and talking about what the call on our life is as followers of Jesus to be peacemakers and to pursue hospitality. How a lot of that comes down to we don't like to admit when we are wrong. Like why is it that it is so hard for us? I'm raising my kids right now and, and it, like, I'll get frustrated with them, but then it's just, it's really that I'm looking into a mirror at how I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. And I'm like, just tell your brother that you're sorry because you should not have punched him in the face. Like, and like, why is that so difficult? You just, just to voice, yes, I did this and I should not have. It's so hard for us. We don't want to admit when we are wrong. It's hard. So as we go into this text, I kind of want us to be wrestling with that idea of like admitting that you're wrong can be difficult. So here we go in 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? So in context here, and what has just happened is you remember Saul got like rage crazy, tried to throw a spear through David and pin him to the wall like the whole bug thing. And David escapes twice. Like he had the courage when Saul is afraid of losing his kingdom and just the growing just influence of David and his success. And so there's this huge jealousy and all that's happening. And David is there trying to still calm the crazy man. And so twice he avoids getting pinned to the wall by a spear by Saul. And so Saul the king hates David, and that becomes even more explicit when Saul tells Jonathan, his son, that made that covenant relationship with David, hey, kill him. And he tells all of his servants, kill David, okay? Let's kill him. And then Jonathan comes to Saul and is like, hey, let's not sin against him. Like, this is crazy, dad. Don't do this. And Saul, dad, is like, all right, okay, yeah, okay. Keep your friend. But then he sends some of his servants to, to basically execute or assassinate David while he's sleeping. And so David and his young wife, they, they kind of have this plot where he's lowered through a roof and he, he, or through a window and he gets away and all this stuff. But now David has come back to Jonathan like, hey, dad's trying to kill me here. What's going on? What have I done? Look at verse two. Jonathan said to him, no, you won't die. Listen. My father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. 
Jonathan is like, like, no, 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 no. There's no way. There's no way dad wants to kill you. He, w- he wouldn't be wanting to kill you without telling me. I would know this. If that was true, David, I would know this. You're fine. You're safe, David. It's okay. And so, again, I want you to remember the context of this relationship. These friends, like Jonathan loved David like he loved himself. They started that covenant relationship. They're in a tight relationship. Remember how we define friendship this. There's a large level of affection and attachment here. That he loves them as he loves himself, and he has made a binding covenant with him. And so they're in this relationship, and Jonathan is saying, like, no, 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 remember how much I love you. Like, you're okay. Dad would have told me if he wanted to kill you. He doesn't want to kill you. You're okay, David. But Jonathan, the peacemaker, is a beautiful example for us. David is fully convinced, like, this is not good. Things are not going well. Your dad wants to kill me. I'm running. I'm kind of here secretively and all this stuff. And Jonathan is playing the role of peacemaker, saying, like, no, it's okay. Like, I've talked to dad, because he doesn't know about the whole assassination attempt after he talked to dad. And so Jonathan here is trying to reconcile the two. This is beautiful. This is what we should be doing. When we watch the world around us exploding and becoming more and more polarized, we should stand in the gap and say, no, guys, there's a better way. We don't have to hate each other. We don't have to, students from us, bite and devour each other because then we're all just consumed. There's nothing left if we continue this game. So what are we gonna do? Bring the two together. That's what Jonathan is doing here beautifully and showing us. And so now what happens? Let me summarize for you. They form a plan. They form a plan to determine what the actual truth is because Jonathan is convinced, no, you're safe. And David is convinced, no, I'm not safe. So let's figure out what is actually true here. So there's a new moon feast that's coming up. This festival is coming up. And this is a religious festival. They're going to have a feast where the king would have his table. And so only very special people would come to the king's table. To have a seat at the table was a huge honor. To sit with the king at a festival, at a feast. And so this new moon feast, so once a month they'd come together and it would be this kind of religious thing and so you need to be ceremonially clean to come to this and you come together and sit at this table, enjoy this meal, there would be sacrifice and all these kinds of things happening. But David is like, look, it's coming and so what's gonna happen is I'm not going to show up. So Jonathan, if I don't show up, what I want you to do is just kind of watch your dad, watch King Saul and see how he responds to my absence that there's a, there's a seat for me at that table. He's gonna be expecting me to be there and I'm convinced he wants me to be there because he wants to kill me and you're convinced that he doesn't wanna kill me so let's watch and see what happens if I don't show up. And so it's, it's a two-day deal. I'm not gonna show up. You tell dad, if he questions us, tell him that I wanted to go back to Bethlehem, my hometown, because my clan is gonna hold a sacrifice there and my brother has actually required me to come. And so that should be very reasonable. It should be rational that if you need to tell King Solomon he's in his right mind, he doesn't want to kill me, be like, oh, okay, that's fine. But if he's not, like if he really wants to kill me, then this will be pretty indicative. Like it's gonna tell us where he's really at with me. And so Jonathan agrees, he's like, okay. And so how we'll do this is after the feast and, and, and we see how dad responds to you not being there, then we'll come out here where you're gonna hide behind this rock and I'm gonna come out where like in this open field and I'm gonna shoot some arrows and I'm gonna send my messenger like if I shoot the arrow too far and I say like, go, it's further, then that means like, yeah, this is not good. You need to get out of here. This is dangerous. You need to flee. Dad is crazy mad at you and he wants to kill you. But if I shoot it short, then I'm like, no, come back. It's safe. I was right. You're safe. Come on back, David. And so 
The arrow is to fall short or far. And so this is what happens in verse 30. So um, they're, they're at the table, and Saul has just asked, like, Where, where's David, guys? Uh, Jonathan, where's your friend David? Because that's a seat, and it's empty. He's not here. The first day, it's empty, and, and he's like, oh, you know, he must be ceremonially unclean. There are a lot of, uh, the, you go back to Leviticus, and, and you can read how you can become ceremonially unclean. If you touch something that's unclean, uh, you can become defiled in all these ways, and you basically have to wait a day and wash. And so the first day, like, not a big deal. People don't show up because they became unclean. And so day two is like, no, 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 he should have taken care of this. Where is he at, Jonathan. Where's he at? And Jonathan's like, well, he went to a festival with his own clan, and they were gonna make a sacrifice, and I told him it was fine, he's good. And so watch how Saul responds to what Jonathan just told him about why David is not there. Verse 30, then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Dads, don't talk about mom like that. <laughs> don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Not that what I said was a disgrace to your mother. Every day, Jesse's son lives on earth and you and your kingship are not secure. Now sin for him and bring him to me. He must die. There's our answer, loud and clear. <laughs> you were wondering, Jonathan? Yeah, he must die. He's a threat to your own throne, son. Like, you should be taking the throne from me as you succeed me in this dynasty. And he is a threat to that. We have to eliminate the threat. Jonathan answered his father back, why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. Shameful behavior toward David. And don't miss the magnitude of that shameful behavior toward David. That not only is he just like, he's so jealous of the success and esteem of David that he wants to kill David, but he has actually used a religious ceremony to actually attempt to murder David. Like he is using, like imagine deciding like, I'm gonna use Sunday worship gathering to get together with that person I know is gonna be there so that I can kill them. Like that's what Saul is doing here. And if there's any doubt, like he takes the spear that obviously he was intending to pin David to the wall with and he tries to kill his own son. He's like, you get the message now? I want him dead. And Jonathan's like, what did he do? Because Jonathan knows in a right sane mind, it's like all of his success is actually just strengthening our kingdom. What is the problem, dad? But now it is crystal clear. It's quite the telling response. You know, Father's Day is next week. Just a little side note here. Pro tip for you dads, not that I'm an awesome dad, but if you don't like your kids' friends, uh, throwing a spear at your son or daughter is not the way to tell them. Just letting you know. Ah, there's a healthier way to say I don't like your friend group. Verse 35, let's keep going. It says, in the morning, Jonathan went out to the countryside for the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him. He said to the servant, run and find the arrows I'm shooting. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, but Jonathan called to him and said, the arrow is beyond you, isn't it? Then Jonathan called to him, hurry up and don't stop. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned to his master. He did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. 
Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the servant who was with him and said, go, take it back to the city. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone Isle, fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan has shared, according to the plan, the truth, the truth that he had discovered. This is a beautiful expression of genuine love and care for each other as friends, that they fall back on that covenant commitment that they had made together. This is how I love you and this is how you love me. Remember that, even for all of our descendants. And that assurance, let's move forward, but you gotta know, it is not safe, David. But you watch what he did there? He, he actually gave the weapon to the servant and said, go to the city. So it's a way to remind David, like, hey, I'm safe. I even just sent my weaponry away. Now come, David. And then David, in love for Jonathan, comes, knowing like, yeah, <laughs> I've been anointed king, but your dad's still the crazy king, and he really wants to kill me. You just made that clear. And so he should feel a little threatened, and yet he comes, knowing he is the anointed king to come, and he bows down three times to pay homage to Jonathan. And Jonathan, the prince of a king who should not even be there, who has been basically left by God. And they come together. That's beautiful, genuine love and care for each other. But this is what I want you to see. Jonathan came, and he had to admit he was wrong. Because Jonathan was fully convinced. No, it's safe. Like, I had that conversation with dad, remember? Like, yeah, he was crazy for a bit. You know how he gets. You come play the liar, calm him down. But he's cool. It's cool now. But now he has to come and say, I was wrong, David. I was wrong. It is not safe. He had to admit he was wrong. And this is what I want you to get from this. Apologizing requires humility. Apologizing requires humility. It is fueled by love. It is fueled by what? Love. And it calls us to action. So as we break that down, uh, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about this, like the art of apologizing. That Jonathan has to come here and admit he was wrong. And so we can learn so much from that about what it is. And so when we come to someone and we admit we're wrong, what are we doing? We're apologizing, in essence. And so the art of apologizing starts with humility. Jonathan realized that he was wrong and David was in trouble. And so to apologize, a real apology has to start with humility. It has to start with a confession that I was wrong. And look, saying I was wrong is the same as saying, I mean, I'm not right. And we love to be right. So to say that I am wrong, I was wrong, is to say I was not right. We have to own that. You will not own that until you actually humble yourself. We must humble ourselves. And the beauty of humbling yourself in the gospel paradigm is that Jesus has modeled for us and he actually explicitly taught this in Matthew 23, 12. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the beauty of the way that God works in his economy. We think in our economy like, hey, if I wanna be on top, I better put myself on top. And Jesus is like, no, actually, if you wanna be on top, put yourself at the bottom. 
because the least and the last will be the greatest and the first. So humble yourself and then you will be exalted. If you can embrace humility, then you can genuinely apologize. You have the ability to actually come and say, I was wrong. Humility is essential. And the, and the next thing in the art of apologizing is that it is fueled by genuine love. It is love that will compel us to actually tell someone I was wrong and I am sorry for that. We must care more about people than about our being perceived as right or victorious. Jonathan could have made any excuse to just let it go. But instead, because he genuinely cared for David, he wanted David to know it is not safe. And so I have to let you know I was wrong and you need to get out of here. You've got to go. Jonathan cared enough about David and his relationship to admit he was wrong. And so now think in your life. Are there times when you probably should apologize, but you just don't care enough about the relationship to do that? Could be a coworker, could be some random person on a rec team, whatever it is, could be your spouse that you live with, but you don't care enough about the relationship or that person to just simply say, I was wrong. Genuine love is what will fuel our apologies. And to have that, um, it's, it's called relational capital, you know? We are broken people. We are sinful, and on this side of redemption, we are going to fail each other. And yet the beauty is that Jesus has taught us, like, if you want to be forgiven by God, then you have to forgive others. Because what he's saying is, if you've experienced the grace of God, that you do not deserve to be forgiven, then you will realize, now I have the capacity to forgive you. Because God forgave me, and I don't deserve that at all. And so that vertical love and forgiveness, I can then extend out horizontally to you. And so now I'm free to do this. Why? Because of the capital I've gained from God, that there's this, this overwhelming source of assurance, security, peace inside that now can become peace outside that I can have with you. And so as I live my life, like with my wife, if, if things are going well and I'm investing in her and she's investing in me and we're gaining more and more trust and love, affection, all this stuff, like it's good and then we have a bad day, then that bad day can feel like, oh, everything is awful. But then we stop and we're like, wait, wait, wait. If we have 30 good days and then one bad day, why would one bad day suddenly paint the picture of all 31 days? That was a beautiful month. All that relational capital is built up to say, no, this interaction right now is not what defines us. In fact, let's work through this interaction right now because of all of what we have built up to say, no, it can be better. And it is better. This is not who we are. So build that capital. Um, if Jesus called us to love even our enemy, there is no one that we should not have the humility and the love for, the ability to apologize to. Everyone should matter. It matter enough to admit we're wrong. And then the last one is in the art of apologizing. It calls us to action. Jonathan came back. He literally took action. He came back to inform David that he was wrong. And it is not safe. He came back to ensure that David would escape from Saul, that David would escape from the danger that stood against him. And do you see the gospel picture in this? Because of love, love compelled someone to come and to warn them and say, here's a way out. You need to know there's danger facing you and you need to get out of here. Jonathan, this peacemaker, came 
to the rescue of David. The ultimate peacemaker is Jesus, the one who has come to inform us to preach. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to know there is great danger that you are facing. In fact, you already live under condemnation. But there's a way out. There's life and there's freedom. There's forgiveness for sin and it's in him. Jesus has come as the peacemaker making peace by his own blood shed on the cross that all of the sin and the very wrath of God that stood against us would now be absolved, that Jesus would take it on himself as the son of God nailed to a cross so that we could be at peace with God. And he came to us, he took action because of love and came to this planet to warn us and tell us, look, there's a way to avoid the danger, to get out of this mess. I have made the way. And he said, in fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Ephesians 2, 17 says it like this. He said, he came, Jesus, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And so now our call in response to that, our call in response to what Jesus has done for us in preaching this gospel of peace is to be his ambassadors, to be peacemakers ourselves, to go tell the world, this is how you can know peace. It is to know Jesus. It is to live in his forgiveness that he has come to give us life in abundance, everlasting life with him. We tell the world that now. And why do we do that? Because it's fueled by genuine love and because we have humbled ourselves to realize I don't live for myself anymore. I will humble myself and live for God because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so now, out of that, we live and we go share this message. And look, I wanna tell you, like, look at me, look at me, beloved. Your personality is not an out for you. Every single one of us as followers of Jesus is commanded with this great commission to go make more disciples, to tell the world how they can have peace with God and peace with each other, how shalom, how real peace and rightfulness can be restored here. That is all of our calling. And some of you are like, oh, it's not me. Like, uh, oh, here comes the weird thing. Like, he's gonna tell us to go, like, knocking on doors. I'm not telling you to go knock on doors and use some kind of weird shape thing to, like, make a paradigm. Like, no. I, if you do that and it's effective, God bless you. Continue. But I have not found that effective for me. But what you are called to do is live in obedience. And so, like, you need to share your faith. We must be a church that shares our faith, that shares this gospel, this good news of a God who loves this world so much that when it stood in rebellion against him, he stepped into it and took on humanity. Jesus, the son of God, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, stepped in, submitted to this, humbled himself in obedience to the point of death on a cross so that he could be the once and for all sacrifice to atone and cover our sin so that we could be at peace with God again and then have peace with each other. We have to share that message with the world. And how much more so should we want to share that as we see the world just imploding around us? We have to. But some of you are like, that's really hard. Tell me how. Kids, I love having you in the room. Um, 
uh, Memorial Day, our family was at the beach with my wife's side of the family, and it's huge. Lots of kids. Some of you are in here. Uh, but uh, G-Paw, the grandpa and the, and the group, he's got a conch shell. And, and so like, he's standing up on top of the dune, and a lot of the grandkids are all down there on the beach and stuff. And so he picks up the conch shell, and you know that these things can become a horn. You like, cut off the tip of it, and you blow into it, and you do that little vibrating thing like a, uh, a wind instrument. And, and it like, oh, like you can make all kinds of weird noises and stuff. I won't do it into the microphone here for you. But he starts blowing it, and all the kids on the beach are like, oh, gee, ball, like, I want to do that. And so they all come running up the steps, and they like kind of form a line there, and they're all trying to blow the thing. And you know what it sounds like? <laughs> so you guys know, you've seen Moana. You know that these things can be blown like a horn. It's cut, it's ready to go. I need a kid volunteer who thinks they can blow it. All right, I saw, I saw your hand first. All right, Soph, come on up. You're confident you can do this, right? Maybe. What? <laughs> Maybe. All right. All right. Oh, give him another shot. Oh, three, three tries. Try again. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? That's okay. You can have that, actually. We'll make another one. Soph, do you want this? Keep practicing. Keep practicing. Not right now, though. Good job, though. So here's the thing. I did not do that because I can't do it either. <laughs> but how often do we view sharing our faith like that? I know that this instrument can be effective. I've watched the power of God in his gospel being shared transform a life to bring someone from death to life. That's my own experience. That someone shared this good news with me and God gifted me with belief. He opened my eyes to see, yes, this is true. Jesus, you are the greatest treasure, and I choose you. I want you. I trust you. And there's life. There's the joy of salvation. Like, we know this. We know the power of God is there for salvation. But then you think, you're like, I know this instrument works, but when I blow on it, it doesn't work. I don't know how to do that. No. You keep keep doing this. Because here's the thing. When it comes to sharing our faith, it is not about what you do. You just be faithful in sharing. And you trust that our sovereign God is the one who saves. And so he will do the work of saving. You just communicate the truth. So know the truth. Study the gospel. Know the gospel. Share the gospel faithfully. And the more you blow on that horn, so to speak, the more you're gonna realize like, oh, this is how to do it. And you learn like, hey, some of these things are a little more effective than others. But you know where it starts? With just simply trying. Just try, and maybe that looks for you like just inviting someone to church, inviting someone into your home group, having someone over for a beloved dinner party, saying, hey, I want a new disciple partner, so hey, we're gonna practice these disciplines. We get together for 30 minutes a week, and we talk about this discipline of the month. Will you do that with me? I think it could be really good for us. Just invite people in. Let them come over and see the way that you treat your kids, the way that you love your spouse. Invite people into your life and then be ready to share the reason for the hope that you have within you in the language of Peter. It does not have to be some massively eloquent speech that you give. You don't need to be a great orator. You just need to love God because here's the thing. That conch, sometimes I can do it, particularly if it's a bigger one, but that one, I tried yesterday. I, I, just, I couldn't do it. 
me and Leland, we actually went and scoured one of the local thrift store, craft stores, and we found that thing, and we came home, and I don't have the appropriate tools to do that, so we've got like my drill out with a cookie cutter for an air thing, and like it's just like, we're gonna make this work, and so he's holding, I'm like, don't slip, because I'll cut your finger off, and like, here we go, we're going through it, like we cut it out, and we've got a punch, I'm like, hold this, I've got a really big hammer, we call it Excalibur, and like knocking it out and everything, like we go through all of this trouble, and we can't do it, but here's the thing, like, we are super excited about that. If I got up here, and like, so if I want that back, I don't, but if I saw like, I want to try this really tough. And like, and I told you about all of what me and Leland went through yesterday to make this happen. And then I blow on it, and it doesn't work. Do you think less of me? Do you think I'm weird because I tried? No. Like, <laughs> you spent time yesterday making this thing and you gave it a shot. No, it makes sense. Like, it means something to you. All right, you, maybe you'll get it again, Pastor Kevin. I don't know. Maybe it's not for you, but that's all right. Like, no one thinks less of you. And I've said this before. But like, that's how you need to view sharing your faith. That the more that you just love God, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you grow in intimacy with him, the more naturally you are just going to talk about him. And it won't be this weird thing because we all have weird things that we love to talk about, all of us. But when you really love it, you just talk about it and it is natural. And people don't think like, oh, I don't know. Like, no, it's like, oh, you love that. So don't think that sharing your faith means you need to be some great just evangelist. Just, no, just be obedient to Jesus and love him and talk about what you love. This week, uh, someone that will remain anonymous that's related to the Love Church, uh, they, they asked me if I would just read a letter so they got into a dispute with another family about some stuff going on. And, and they just, like, can you just read this letter and, and let me know if this is appropriate? And, and it just like, touched my heart so much that this dispute had nothing to do with like, just blatant spiritual things. But in this letter, this family addressed this issue but then could not help themselves but share the gospel in addressing that issue. Like, th- I just want you to know this is why I have to land here. How beautiful is that? If, if America falls apart and 300 years later, someone comes and excavates the city of Claremont and they find that letter. Oh, I just so love to think, like, the fight's about this, but someone in Claremont 300 years ago somehow tied it to this. <laughs> Like, let's be people like that because when you love God, when you love his good news, then you are going to naturally speak of it. So share it. Let's have the humility to admit when we are wrong and we were all wrong before God. But he came in grace. Love fueled him coming to us. And so love should fuel us going to others and sharing like there is peace available. Take action. Share this message of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how much you love us. And God, I thank you that, that even in stories of, of old, like David and Jonathan and, and crazy King Saul, that we can learn so much. Now, there is so much to, to just constantly draw out of your word that leads us into life and freedom. So God, let us be a church that is unashamed of that, that will always stand on your word, submitting to you as you are the greatest of our freedom. It's actually come under you, so help us to humble ourselves, God.
that now, even as we sing. Encourage our hearts. Convict us of sin. Change us.